Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. I'm Bill Roden, and as we continue covering how our world is changing because of COVID-19, today on this Sunday afternoon, we'll talk to a former NFL intern about the state of HBCU football players and the NFL draft, along with a firefighter from Columbus, Ohio, and how that state is combating the outbreak. My two co-hosts are Whitney Bronson and Randall Williams, our fellows from Hampton University. How are you guys doing today? And did you get a chance to watch the first few rounds of the draft? I am doing well, Bill. I did get a chance to watch the first few rounds of the draft. It was really great and very interesting to see how they were going to do it without everybody being in the same place. But I'm glad that they were able to, you know, get it together. And it looked really good. I'm doing pretty well, Bill. Can't complain. And yeah, the draft was a lot of fun. Um, With it not being in Vegas, I think the NFL did a really good job. Did the NFL win? I think so. I think they did. The, I think a lot of people were expecting glitches and lags and, and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, personally, I didn't see a lot of that. Um, I think it ran rather smooth. And uh, the celebrations at first, when when people were first reacting to like getting drafted, there weren't a lot of big celebrations. But as time went on in that first and second round, families started to celebrate a little bit more, and it felt like uh, they were being welcomed into a nice family. So it was real nice. I like the inclusion of the fans too. How they had um, them on the back of the commissioner's screen and everything. So that was a really great way to still involve everybody as they would have been. Well, you know, we're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, and last week was the first part of the Jordan documentary, ESPN's The Last Dance. It's really blowing up over social media, and I saw that our own very East made a very funny bingo board centered around the first part. What did you guys think, and was there anything specific that stood out about The Last Dance? And are you excited for part two? Stood out. Uh, I'd say I didn't – I mean, I'm so young, so I didn't know any of the stuff with uh, Jerry Krause. All of that was news to mm-hmm. me. Um, yeah. And it was really, really interesting because uh, when you think about dynasties or potential dynasties that could have ended and, and the pride thing that comes into them. You could talk about the, I want to say the 94 and 95 Cowboys with uh, Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones. It's, it's very interesting to see like how different things were compromised all because one person wants credit and um, probably a little bit more credit than they deserve. Yeah. I will say the Jerry Krause thing most definitely. And just the fact that he was trying to break everything up when instead you could have gotten more NBA championships, which I'm pretty sure is the goal in the first place. (laughs) So that was surprising to me, but also the story with Scottie Pippen and how he was grossly underpaid. And I don't know, that just kind of took things in a whole different perspective for me because I mean, we always talk about how, you know, maybe rappers or musicians are underpaid, but I've never really seen a story concerning that and I mean obviously with you know women's soccer and women's sports but in terms of men in sports it was really surprising to me to see that he was you know that underpaid and that you know it didn't really seem like anybody cared 
And I think I, I was going to say real quick, I think the reason why he was underpaid was also very telling because of all the, tra- the, the tragedies and traumatic things that happened in his childhood. So he was very concerned on being able to provide for everyone. And I think that at times got a little bit misconstrued with on, on social media because everyone's just like, oh, my gosh, like the second greatest player ever didn't make that much money. And he was, and Scotty was just more like, I'm fine. Like, I'm able to provide for my family. And, and that's really, really telling especially for African-Americans, because I, I know a lot of people who would right. do things very, very similar. And I think there are a lot of NFL players in the draft who will do things very similar to that in the next decade. So it's uh, very telling. Mm-hmm. That's actually a great point. Uh, the great thing about the draft, for those of us in the media, uh, the draft, NFL draft and the Jordan documentary gave us a much-needed break from COVID-19. But it is really important to stay grounded and focused on what's going on. So let's get into it. The past three days, the NFL draft went on, and many dreams came true for college players across the nation. And it was a lot of fun. What was troubling for a grizzled veteran like me who went to an HBCU is that only one player, Lachavius Simmons, an offensive tackle from Tennessee State University, was the only HBCU player drafted. Some of the greatest players in NFL history have been drafted out of HBCUs, but this year only one heard his name called. Now, obviously, due to COVID-19, a lot of events were canceled, including the NFL's first HBCU combine and pro days nationwide. The cancellations deprived many athletes from the platform and the exposure needed to increase their chances of being drafted. Here to talk with us about all of this is Sissy Farmer. Ms. Farmer is a student at Hampton University who's pursuing her master's degree in business administration, but she focuses a lot of time on sports. She runs track and she loves football. Uh, Last summer, she interned with the National Football League and its football operations division. Since then, she's traveled and worked at the Super Bowl the NFL Combine, and likely would have been at the draft in Las Vegas had it not been canceled. Uh, So welcome to the show, Sissy. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. So we want to talk to you a little bit about the virtual NFL draft. You're an intern at the NFL. What was your virtual role at the virtual draft? Dealing with the draft, I thought it was something that was really interesting. Obviously, it was something needed due to the fact that the real draft in Las Vegas couldn't happen. But I thought that the office and the football operations department did an extremely good job um, with everything with the draft, making it really personable with the first-round picks inside their homes. And then also with the whole COVID-19 thing, the NFL was able to raise $85 million in two days. So them being able to do that and then also breaking records where Donna Ponte was the first female NFL executive to announce in the seventh round So I thought it was really good. I think they did an extremely good job and working with the circumstances um, that they were given. Now, through seven rounds, only one HBCU player was drafted. And obviously, this comes with a lot of baggage just because the NFL did a great job with bringing the HBCU combine, which would have been in Miami and would have brought more exposure and things like that. But were you surprised that only one player from uh, Tennessee State was, was drafted? I would say yes and no. Yes, because it was the seventh round and, you know, it was with Chicago and their an offensive lineman. But 
within like the last couple of years, we really haven't seen anyone in the first three rounds except I want to say two years ago from South Carolina State, a linebacker. So I definitely want to say HBCUs have a lot of talent, but it goes back to different opportunities that were given with football operations and the NFL creating this combine. It's going to be able to give HB students a lot of exposures that they previously did not have that I think is going to be a jump start to a new like a new way and a new time for HBCU students. How much impact do you think the cancellation of the HBCU combine had on these players? I definitely think it had an impact because a lot of them were training with their agencies and a lot of them were playing on having this HBCU combine, but as well as these pro days that all the different schools have. Majority of pro days were canceled, so being able to put the numbers down was really hard versus like a lot of schools and a lot of agencies have more opportunities, I say. They have more facilities that they can use. I think it was a really big impact, but, you know, adversity is what creates the great things. So I think that they did good with trying to still get everyone involved. Even though there's only one person drafted, there was a few people that got picked up in the free agencies from the Tidewater area here. We have a Hampton University student, Christian Angula, who's a a cornerback, he's really good with his press coverage and as well as getting his itch open, as well as Bobby Price, who went to Norfolk State, who's a free safety going to Detroit. They ran a lot of man coverage, and I know at Detroit they ran a lot of man coverage. So even though there's only one person drafted, there's a good amount of people that are coming from free agency as well that they have the opportunity to just have to make the most out of it. Now, as far as HBCU goes, we've talked a little bit about what the NFL can do to to further, but I think they did a pretty good job, and no one could have expected COVID-19 and the coronavirus to hit, but I was really excited for the HBCU combine. Now, on the opposite end, for HBCUs and HBCU athletes, what do you think that these schools and these athletes can do to maybe get some more exposure so that NFL scouts who aren't aware of them uh, can become aware of them? I think the biggest thing is being able to increase resources. Being a student athlete myself, I ran track at Hampton, and my brother played football at Penn State. They're both Division One schools, but the resources that are available are night and day. Being able to increase with coaches, training staff, weight room, facilities, just the field, meetings, recovery. The biggest thing is increasing the resources for our HBC students to be able to have that equal opportunity to perform at the highest level. Isn't and this is both for for the three of you. Isn't the bigger picture here that the golden era HBCUs may be over? I mean, you know, again, when I went to Morgan State in like the sixties, <laughs> all of the great black athletes going to black schools, primarily because the white schools said we don't want you. Then, as soon as they realized they needed black athletes, the raid began. And I'm just wondering, are those days over? I'll say yes and no. I think the facility gap is always going to be, I think is always going to be night and day. The money is just different. Hampton's locker room or Hampton's weight room is is tiny. Uh, You couldn't fit 75 people in there if you wanted to and have enough equipment. But on the opposite end, I'll say talent is talent. And if you can play and get an opportunity for yourself, I think Personally, the leagues like the XFL would have been great for HBCU athletes because it's still a league where you can go and perform, and it's a real it's real football. It's not anything fake. If you watched the NFL, you would or the XFL, you would have seen that the XFL was great. You have players who are still getting signed, and you have players who are just getting an opportunity to play. And with that, you have HBCU athletes get a second chance. Maybe you don't get drafted. So what? You go to the XFL, you make a little bit of cash there, and then you develop your film on a professional level. 
And then you can come back and be like, hey, this is what I did. I performed against maybe not the best of the best, but who knows? Some of those XFL players might be better than the NFL players. So yes and no. It's just uh, – it's about – I think it's more of about the, the route you take to get there rather than just getting straight to the, the draft. I would kind of agree with Randall with yes and no. The big thing goes back to exposure. And though we don't have the facilities, talent is talent. I'm going to take Tariq Cohen, for example. Tariq Cohen went to North Carolina A&T, and now he's on um, the Chicago Bears. He was a walk-on at A&T but was able to become the player that he is today. And that goes to – North Carolina A&T continuously goes to the Celebration Bowl, so they're continuously getting more exposure than other HBCUs. North Carolina A&T is on the rise when it comes to athletics and especially football, especially with the change that Hampton University is the second school to leave an HBCU conference. They went to the Big South with Tennessee State being first, being in the Ohio Valley Conference. A&T following Hampton University into the Big South. So I also think that, HBCUs broadening the horizon and being able to go into different conferences also allows us to have more exposure because the Big South is able to give these HBCU students more exposure, having their own, the Big South has their own TV network where the MIAC and the SWAT for the traditional um, Division One HBCU conferences, they don't, if they have already making more exposure. So I think if HBCUs can continue to try to create this exposure I do think the golden age is coming because HBCUs offer a lot of stuff to young African-Americans that, you know, at these big PWIs, they just don't. So right now it's down, but I do see in the near future, um, the golden days are definitely coming soon. What do think is the difference to why you went to an HBCU and decided to go to an HBCU and a world-class athlete like your brother decided not to go to an HBCU, decided not to go to uh, Hampton. What's the difference between you as students deciding to go to an HBCU, but a world-class student athlete deciding not to go to an HBCU? At least for me, to be completely honest, I really didn't know that Hampton was an HBCU, despite the fact that my whole family went there. My mom and dad didn't really talk about Hampton. They didn't, you know, you know, when you have family members who go to certain schools and they try to like show them that they're like, you need to go here, you need to go here. Like my parents really didn't do that. So I was really looking at the academics and the programs. I saw that Hampton had, you know, the Scripps Howard School of Journalism, they're sponsored by them. And Ohio University had Scripps Howard um, also on their campus. And I did not like Ohio University at all. But as soon as I stepped foot on Hampton's campus, it seemed just like everything opened up. And I was like, okay, I literally have to go here. So, I mean, I think really just the environment the culture. And when I stepped on that campus, I literally told my mom, it feels like home here. And what I would say is what Whitney said, I agree with 100%. As well as um, talking from athletics side point, I ran track at Hampton for the last four years. And one big thing with Hampton was Hampton's track program is world class. We have numerous Olympians that came through our program that still train at Hampton today. So running track at Hampton means we get to train with Olympians every single day. So being able to be exposed to that and having the tradition of winning at Hampton was a big thing to me. The track program is successful. We won the first big South Championship indoor and outdoor season, being the first HBCU to do so. So being with that and everything Whitney said with, I'm a business student and the five-year MBA program that has 100% placement. So between those two things, being able to 
you know, love my school, win, and have a good academic record, that's, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. For me, Bill, it was really simple. I went to predominantly white high schools, and the schools that I visited, they were they were fine. I knew that I could excel at any school that I went to, but you rarely get a chance to be around as many young Black people if you don't go to high schools in the South or inner city schools. So I wanted an opportunity to go to a school that wasn't necessarily in a big city, was a little out of the way, and had a, had a nice, uh, peaceful atmosphere, and that's what Hampton has. So Hampton has been great, and I miss it. So our guest has been Sissy Farmer. She's a student at Hampton University pursuing her master's degree in business administration. Sissy, thank you so much for joining us, giving us uh, enlightenment about the virtual draft, and wish you the best of luck, and uh, be safe. Thank you guys so much for having me, and I hope you guys all stay safe, too. We'll be back. Why the coronavirus has infected millions of people and taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Columbus, Ohio currently has 15,587 confirmed cases and 711 reported deaths. Governor Mike DeWine announced a couple days ago that Ohio will remain under its stay-at-home orders at least until 11.59 p.m. on May 1st. Harlan Henderson, who joins us this afternoon, is a firefighter based in Columbus, Ohio. He's with us today to discuss how the fire department is dealing with this and how they are helping citizens. Again, all of us, thank you so much for the work you've done, the sacrifice you made. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Just kind of start things off. How have you been dealing just personally with what you've seen? I mean, it's one thing for us to hear the news reports and we hear how many people are dying and at a certain point, they become numbers, but you've actually seen things. What On the ground, what have you seen and how has it affected you? Things that I've seen is, personally, my own experience, I, I think I've seen the development of the COVID-19 before it hit mainstream news. Uh, here in Columbus, Fire Department does all the EMS. So not only do we run on a, a fire-related calls, we also do 911 emergency calls pertaining to health. Any trip to the hospital that you would call 911, we run that through the fire department as well. So we get people who have flu issues, cardiac arrest, so on and so forth. So I know that personally, I think that my station and a lot of us came in contact with that virus earlier on in the year, we believe. And it made a lot more sense, some of the symptoms we personally thought we had when it hit mainstream news and they gave it a name. So we kind of have seen just uh, it affect us as employees and the general population more in a personal kind of capacity. Have you ever seen anything like this in all your years of being a firefighter? And how long have you actually been a firefighter? So um, I've been a firefighter. This will be my seventh, approaching my eighth year. And during my time on the department, I, I have not seen anything like this. It definitely is unprecedented and it's very unique and unto itself. So there's things that are happening that we haven't been through. And so it's a, it's a, we're learning as things happen and growing from it. 
One of the things you said that uh, I know we've had conversations before this call was you said you think you've encountered it. And seeing some of the threads that people talk about on Twitter, one of the things that I think young people often think is that we are invincible. You go to school, you have fun, your body's healthy, uh, you have a strong immune system. All of these things are given normally when you're young. But you're in your mid, uh, late 30s. What is it like for you? You think you've encountered it. How does it feel? And what, is the, what are those symptoms like? For me, when I believe I encountered it, I believe I didn't go to the doctor and my confirmation was through my youngest son. He has some health issues where we have to monitor his body and so on and so forth. So when he got it, we had to take him into the doctor and they were unable to give me a diagnosis for what he was experiencing. This was in February. Mm -hmm. So they basically said, we assume he has strep and flu A and B, but we can't confirm it. So they monitored his blood and his well-being for like a week and a half. We kept taking him to labs about every two, three days. And they said his immune system was really down from fighting something. Mm. And before we take him back to school, give him some more time. Well, then we got a call from the school saying that half his class was out. And him and I were exhibiting the same Mm -hmm. symptoms where I had fever. I had chills. I had a sore throat. It started with that. Um, I lost my the sense of taste and smell for two days. And we just kind of sat in the room. We didn't know it was COVID, but we just sat in the room watching Black Panther movies and laughed with each other, right? But how grateful I am that we made it through and we were okay. So, yeah, the, the symptoms are real. And I can tell you what I experienced in February was like nothing ever I've ever caught. I don't get sick often, but I have never had a bout with uh, illness or flu-like virus that did what that did so how does that feel knowing that you both have experienced those symptoms and being an essential worker and still having to you know go out and interact with people who you don't know may or may not have it while having an immunocompromised son back at home right right i think that's a great question you know i experienced both sides of it. I, I'm very grateful because as an essential worker, I'm still employed and I have great PPE, which is protective wear they provide us with. So when I'm out serving the general public, my city takes great care of me. I got the proper mask and so on and so forth to be able to be of good service and not continue to spread it. But at the same time, you know, there's, there's a, there's a real heavy weight of responsibility as a dad and as a husband to I haven't had the test to confirm that I have antibodies or I've had it. So I'm going off of just an educated experience and assumption, but I just have an, you know, the weight and responsibility not to bring it home to my, to my own house because it could be terrible if we didn't have it and, and, and we do encounter and we don't get through it the way we did. So, you know, there's gratefulness and then there's also the reality, like I need to be responsible. Now, as far as the briefing, as far as, you know, when you said you've seen this go from, you know, a little thing from, from overseas to coming to America, what has the city of Columbus done and what is the, how's the fire department brief you all to, uh, I guess, prepare you for something that you really can't prepare for? Well, uh, I'm very grateful to be on Columbus Fire Department. It is a great fire department. Uh, and I just seen our higher ups, chiefs and lieutenants, really do their due diligence behind the scenes of studying the information that's been provided and sending it down the proper chain of command. So we usually have a briefing before we go out and check the trucks and the equipment and our, our medic. Uh, and they give us 
you know, exact instructions on how to protect ourselves, even as detailed as should we come encounter with someone who's a suspected COVID patient that we don't come back right to the firehouse, you know, because we're there for 24 hours, we sleep there. Uh, in fact, we go and get decommed. So they do a great job of providing us with resources to protect ourselves and the general public, do a great job of deconning and keeping the equipment on the streets at a level that's uh, conducive to not spreading it. And they continue to work around the clock along with the governor and mayor to uh, stay on the cutting edge of what's being released. Again, I feel really fortunate to be a part of this department because I don't feel like they're not taking care of us. They, they're doing more than I think they should. I'm very happy. You think people are staying sheltered, maintaining social distance? I know that that's a big frustration. Yeah. What do you see in Columbus? I mean, it seems like, particularly with the weather getting nice. You know, I think uh, what I've seen, it really is dependent on the age group and uh, kind of the population you're looking at. I feel like a lot of the families in Columbus and the demographic for Columbus, it's a, it's really like a, a small town with that's a big city. So there's a lot of pro-family uh, values in, in place here. So I feel like families are staying in. They're thinking about their kids and thinking about the elderly. Um, and, it, you know, it's been really like a good camaraderie amongst neighbors. Uh, but what I have seen, if I've, had, if I've seen anybody not really sheltering and staying in would be the younger population. You know, around my station the other day, it was beautiful, maybe like 65 degrees or something's out. And it just, it looked like we were just back in the summer. You know, people were walking in groups of three here and there, but they were all young. And so really dependent, but I would say on a, on a, on a whole, Ohio is following the guidelines um, and they're, they're staying in and doing their things to, to make sure we don't make this a worse for us. As we wrap, what would you say to people who aren't really taking this seriously, to the kids or to the younger people? You're an essential worker. You're on the front lines of this who may have encountered this maybe a couple times that you may not know of. What would you say to the people who aren't really listening? Like, oh, you know, it's only 100,000 people. It's not that big of a deal, da-da-da-da-da. What would you say to them? I would say perspective is really key. I think that even though the ones that I've seen not follow the rules are younger people who – statistically we'll probably get through it very easily. Um, I would say first, that's not guaranteed. Again, this is an unprecedented event and we are learning things as they happen. So we will have better understanding of what we're going through further down the line. In retrospect, we may look back and say we could have done that differently. So I would say don't assume that you'll be just fine. And, and really to think about the elderly, you know, think about your grandma, your grandpa, think about your neighbor those individuals that might really uh, have a tough time getting through this, who may not get through it, your behaviors personally do affect them. This is something that community we have to, as a community, we have to get together and, and fight together. And though you may personally get through it just fine, your actions do affect that other person. Um, so if they did come in contact with you because you are asymptomatic, it'd be detrimental. It might be catastrophic to them. So, Consider, you know, your actions may really save a life that you don't even know about. Oh, listen, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thanks again for uh, everything you're doing and uh, just blessings to your family. Uh, safe and, you know, look forward to talking to you on the other side of this, whatever that is and whatever that looks like. But, but thank you so much. This has been tremendous. Thank you for having me. You guys take care of yourself. It was an honor. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, then we're going to come back with uh, 
the favorite segment of the show from the fellows, Bravo and Navro. So we will be right back. Okay, everybody, now it's time for the favorite part for the fellows of our show, where we say bravo to things that we like and nabra to things we not like. I'm supposed to go first, but I can't think of anything I didn't like. I'm, I'm very at, at a very basic point here. Every time in the morning is like, great. <laughs> I'm like thinking, yes, bro, thank you. Uh, so I don't really have anything except for a POTUS 45 suggesting that people take bleach, inject themselves with bleach as a, uh, you know, that's the universal beyond now, nah, brother. Are you kidding me? Right. Uh, so that's, that's my thing. And actually, I guess uh, Bravo goes to the NFL for pulling off the draft. I think it went off well, and um, I'll give him a Bravo for that. But uh, what you got? So following up off of last week, I told you all that I accidentally bought a pair of shoes that I had no intent to buy. So I went to UPS to go pick up the shoes yesterday. I got off the phone because on top of me not or on top of me ordering the shoes that I did not want to order, I did not complete my address. So the shoes did not deliver directly to my house. Uh, so I had to go to UPS and the person who I talked to, UPS, the, the UPS worker said, yeah, we're open. And I go to UPS and of course, they're not open. So uh, my now bro goes out to UPS who said they were open, but they weren't. And um, similar to Bill, my Bravo goes out to all the NFL players who were drafted this weekend. Despite the, the virtual draft, I think it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of talent, uh, a lot of probably the most talent that I can remember in the NFL draft. And I'm really excited and hoping that NFL season still goes on, even if it has to be without fans. Uh, that was really great. So Bravo to you all. Whitney? My Bravo. You know, the Ohio State football program, they had um, – a lot of players go through the draft this time around. And I want to say they were named like the top school with the most players to be drafted. So my Bravo is going to go out to them, you know, who got a root for the home team. And then my Nabro, I'm going to have to go with the social media mess around CD Lamb and his girlfriend. And everybody just started attacking her. And that was so <laughs> not okay. But um, I will say, I guess she knows how to pick them since she was with Trey Young first. So um, she should be a scout. Good for her. So that's going to be my novel. Wow. That's wait a minute. Okay, that that's a lot. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll, we'll have to pick that up next. You mean wait a minute? You talk. <laughs> Could you give us a little context of, of, of the Nabro? So my Nabro goes to the people who were attacking her on social media. Like they literally found her personal pages and just started commenting on random stuff that didn't have to do with anything. And we're just talking a whole lot of mess about her. So my Nabro specifically goes to those social media trolls is what I'll call them who were just attacking her for no reason. Okay. Well, which we have another segment, <laughs> but we don't. Uh, that's all we have time for. <laughs> if there's anything you'd like us to cover, if you'd like to hear more from uh, Lamb, what his reaction was to this, and if you or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated 
hashtag Rodenfellows. You can also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at WC Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. And I'm on Twitter at Randall Williams. That's R-A-N-D-L-I-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. Bring my Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at wit underscore bit 98. That's W-H-I-T underscore B-I-T nine eight. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the Roden Fellows podcast. The show is produced by the great Arthur Cribbs. And a special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Uh, get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another scintillating HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a really safe and blessed week, everyone. <laughs>